Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone, Simon Mundy here and welcome back to the show. My guest today is Lawrence Halstead, who competed at the London 2012 and Rio 2016 Olympics in the sport of fencing and was a European silver medalist. Now, since retiring post Rio 2016, Lawrence has been performance director for the Danish Fencing Federation, passing on the wisdom that he picked up throughout his international fencing career. You see, Lawrence really is a thoughtful, introspective man, and I've enjoyed several conversations about life, sport, and a plethora of other subjects over the last 18 months or so with him. And despite never having actually met in person, I would even go so far as to describe Lawrence as a friend, and fingers crossed he agrees. Now, alongside his performance director role, Lawrence has become very involved with what I consider to be one of the most interesting organisations in sports. It's called the True Athlete Project. Its goal is to help create a more compassionate world by harnessing the undoubted power of sport for good. And Lawrence has written a book called Becoming a True Athlete, a practical philosophy for flourishing through sport. Now, in a nutshell, Lawrence argues sport is not currently living up to its potential. The pervasive win-at-all-cost mentality has led to problems like doping, corruption, inhuman training cultures and mental health difficulties among athletes at all levels. And Lawrence argues that one significant issue is the failure of people and organisations to identify and then live in accordance with their deeper values. Becoming a True Athlete is an excellent book. Really, it's a manifesto for living, whether you're into sports or not. And the True Athlete Project is undoubtedly one of the most interesting and important organisations, in my opinion, in the world of sport currently. I'll link to both in the show notes and I would encourage you to check them out, particularly those of you who are involved in youth sports in any capacity. Like I said, I have spoken to Lawrence on many occasions just for fun 
And as ever, I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you do too. Before we get to it, I want to say a huge thanks to my sponsors, Pure Sport. Their range of CBD and nootropic supplements have had a positive impact on how I sleep, unwind and focus throughout the day. I highly recommend them. CBD has been shown to have benefits for anxiety, inflammation, aches and pains, and it may even be good for long-term brain and heart health. And anything that keeps me well in the long term, rather than having to fix lots of little niggles once they arrive, really gets a thumbs up from me. Now, combined with their supplements range, Pure Sports are paving the way in the natural wellness market. Frankly, if nothing else, you have to try their unwind oil before bed you will sleep like a baby. The really good news is you lucky lot can get a massive 20% off with the code LIFE20. That's LIFE and the number 20, all one word, at checkout. Just head to puresportcbd.com and enjoy. And with that, let's get to this week's episode. Here is Lawrence Halstead. Lawrence Halstead, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. First things first, Lawrence, congratulations on your book, Becoming a True Athlete, A Practical Philosophy for Flourishing Through Sport. Hats off to you. I thought it was excellent as I text you, in particular the prologue, not to say the rest of the book isn't great as well. <laughs> yeah, I th- it was such a lovely comment. I, I've, I've, I've never thought of myself as a writer, but I've done a fair bit of it now and just the process of writing a book I've always heard about is such a as such a slog and I didn't experience it as that I it was such a pleasure all the way through really I started writing in lockdown and only had kind of evenings after kids had gone to bed to write and just each stage of the process was just a was just really interesting and new and and it was just a pleasure did you know exactly what you were going to write before you wrote it I'd been working on the structure of it for some time, and obviously, it's based that on helps. the work we do in yeah, in the True Athlete Project. I found that in hindsight. Sorry, go on. <laughs> um, so, it was. I only kind of came to the decision to actually write it as a book when I had a fairly solid structure down, and then I just found. I think I found because I, because it was stuff that I'd been working with both in my professional life and and in and in the the organisation for a number of years that it kind of flowed quite naturally from there so the content kind of filled itself Makes sense. out without too much yeah because you've been living this stuff for a long time as we'll get into so what I really liked about this was well one of the many things I liked about it is it's very actually in line with many of the themes or what has naturally evolved through this podcast there is a similarity there isn't there yeah absolutely I mean it's also a reason why I've been such a fan of, of your podcast for these last few years that I've just found it to be so kind of so aligned with what we've been doing what I've been thinking a lot and you tap into so many of the same the same kind of down the same avenues the same things that I find interesting about the reason why I'm I'm involved in this still is that sport has so much to teach us and it's not just the the common things and that's that's what I think we both we've both been kind of attracted to about speaking speaking about together is the, yeah. the slightly less common things that you, we can learn from sport. Slightly, yeah. As well, it's it, quite exciting, I think, and I'm interested to what degree you think as well, that conversations like the ones you and I are about to have and the one that is taking place in your book, 
that Kath Bishop had in her book. It's bubbling to the surface more and more, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. I think there is a a shift, a paradigm shift coming, and there's and that's what we're seeing bubbling up is people noticing just what what's been wrong about the current kind of culture of sport and what is wrong that's that's showing its face in so many so many ways in so many all levels and have been have started thinking about things differently and proposing what what a new way forward could be so really sports got away from its roots is what you're saying anyway we'll dig into all that but first of all we've got to tee you up nicely um so you are the correct me if i'm wrong son of two olympic fencers you're always going to be a sword swisher weren't you yeah that i was the third of, of three and my brother and sister didn't take up fencing particularly so i was pressure was, was our last hope so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it was in the blood and and we yeah, our house is kind of covered in an olympic memorabilia and fencing memorabilia and so it was it just kind of led me in from the start where is fencing at its most popular and when was it at its most popular? Countries like Italy and France, they have a lot of their Olympic medals. They come from fencing. So their fencers are kind of their stars, their star athletes. It's also kind of quite a large sport in Russia and, and America. It's been growing. It's, I heard that it's one of the one of the best sports to take up if you want to get a scholarship to an American college because of the because really? it's niche and it still kind of <laughs> offers the scholarships. There we go. Um and when was it most popular? I guess around the 1500s in Spain and, and France, where <laughs> everyone was was trained in how to duel and fencing yeah. just was the done thing. But um, no, actually, I like to think that it, that we're still we're still far from being recognised. I mean, it is the best sport in the world. Yeah, unquestionably. I'm not biased in any sense at all. But it's <laughs> yeah. just um, it's just an absolutely wonderful sport to take part in. It, the problem is it's quite difficult to watch and kind of understand as a as a layperson. So yeah, it's um, very fast. It's very fast and yeah, it's difficult unless you know the rules and it can be a bit difficult to follow. So yeah. it's the second fastest sport after shooting, right? So the, the, the tip of the sp- kind of uh, object in an Olympic Games is the tip of a sword when you do a flicking action after a, after a, a bullet from a rifle. Nice. So basically, if you had been around let's say in the middle 1500s in italy or france you would have been the premier league footballer of your day yeah absolutely i've, I've yeah, missed my time star. by 500 years <laughs> and in terms of then your competitive cv so double olympian so 2012 was your first one so what was that like it was almost indescribable it was just nothing like especially coming from fencing a small sport nothing like we've ever done before and i had a, like so many of my friends and family were in that stadium and a packed stadium fencing is one of the few one of the few sports that sells out every session throughout an entire olympics and it was just the atmosphere in london i grew up in london so i'm a i'm a londoner so just living there through kind of in the build-up the six-year build-up and then getting to be there, uh, like you're at the set. I mean, any Olympics is amazing. You're at the center mm. of this village. You live in this village and everyone in your village is the center of the world's attention for the next yeah. two weeks. It's just, it's like no other experience. But then also it being home games, I think, no, I mean, you're just very privileged to to get to experience a home games as well. After 2012, then you took a bit of a break, 
decided to hop over to Copenhagen where you met your wife. That's right. Took a year off, went traveling. Copenhagen was one of the spots on my on my tour and happened to meet a young Danish lady and quickly fell in love and decided to to stay and never never moved home again actually. So what's the main difference between Denmark and or Copenhagen and London? What could Britain and England take culturally from the Danes? Oh, it's a great question. There, there's a there's a huge amount that's that's really amazing about the about the Danish culture. It stems from the fact that it's very homogenous. So there's there's a high level of trust. Public trust is super high. So trust in institutions, trust in each other. You can leave your bike unlocked all around the city for days, and you're pretty safe. I mean, the, the cycling culture is just incredible. The kind of the, the healthy lifestyle and the, their approach to work. It's a 37.5 hour work week and people don't bat an eyelid if you leave at two to go and collect your kids and do fill in the work at the other times. Over 50% of the population cycle to work every day. Wow. Is there yeah. a lack of putting people on pedestals? Because I think of somewhere like Switzerland, you know, where Roger Federer, generally speaking, he's allowed to go about his business without being too bothered. You know, people, they don't like to put people on pedestals. Whereas obviously in cultures like Britain or America, we love putting people on pedestals and having celebrity and having mental hierarchies and all that kind of stuff. Is that less prominent in Denmark? Absolutely. I mean, it's the opposite here. So you, it's very kind of non-hierarchical and you see it in organizations where you kind of, I mean, I, I hug my, my bosses when I see them every time and like you're <laughs> like, they're very flat hierarchies, but that also means they have this thing called Yenderlaw, which is their kind of their, their law of being that's just in, inculcated in their culture, which is you're no better than anyone else. Oh, they're no better it. than you. Yeah, it's a, it's it's pretty wonderful. That's beautiful. But it's not very helpful for for elite sport where you have to think that you're better than your opponent and and give, give you yourself a lot of yeah. Well, it can <laughs> it can help certainly. And it, and, um... and they they don't go so far to kind of to support those kind of at the top of their sport because I mean there's nowhere near as much money in elite sport here as there would be sure. in the US or America or England. I love that attitude though of to have that baked into your national psyche that you are no better or worse than anyone else. Because am I right in saying that Denmark tends to come out as the country or one of the happiest countries? And to what degree would you say that those two things correspond? I think the flat, the flatness of society, that there's very little kind of class divide here. I mean, you, that's actually very noticeable that there, there really isn't classes, any kind of class divide. That that absolutely has, is a big source of that kind of general happiness trend. And also you, the taxes are so high at the top end that no one really gets that rich and kind of just bathed in money. So there really there is a bit more kind of flatness in society. So you've been in Denmark ever since you met your lovely wife, but you did have another crack at the Olympics in Rio 2016. Then you retired that was the time at which you got involved with TAP, which is the True Athlete Project, which is a very, very exciting and interesting organization founded by something of a visionary. So can you just tell me a little bit about how you and Sam connected? Yeah, well, it actually just reminds me that the first time I came across your podcast was one of TAP's board members in our first board meeting saying, uh, there's, this, there's this cool podcast you should listen to that, that resonates nice. with what we're doing. 
So that, Love that it. actually, it's actually through tap that I came to you as well. Oh, um, bless them. So in the, the year leading up to Rio, I was, it was actually my wife who prompted me to think a bit more critically about the Olympics itself and what it means in the world. I'd been kind of in this bubble of that the Olympics, obviously an Olympic family, that it's only the most wonderful thing in the world and nothing, nothing bad about it. And my wife just kind of, just through one or two sentences, kind of burst that bubble and maybe realize that there's, there's a lot more beneath the surface to this. And as I was about to compete in the Olympics, I had to, I had to go down that hole and, and kind of figure out what I, what I feel about it and what the reality is. So there are all sorts of negative effects of an Olympic Games. Yeah. Um, can I, sorry, can I just butt in quickly, Lauren? So what did she say exactly? Um, her general kind of attitude was that the Olympics probably shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be a thing anymore because there's so much, so much crap around it that it, it causes more harm than good. I think that was about it. That overall, it's well, as in all Olympic games. Yeah, all Olympic games. Really, and when and you that, say crap around it, what 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 is so it? So the the kind of the the vast expense on the on the host nation on the host city, which is, I mean, it's blown up to absurd proportions. It's just thrown onto the those community communities. There's it's often often money that flows public money that flows into private hands. There's all sorts of corruption. There's greenwashing that happens. Some of those those games where they kick people out of their homes and don't properly relocate them, especially in Rio and Beijing. There, there's all sorts of kind of really quite yeah. dramatic negative effects around the Olympics. And I yeah. ended up through my research, I kind of came across all of this stuff and some really key thinkers. But then I, I ended up feeling like, the Olympics is an overall a net positive because of the effect that it can have on so many million lives, positive effect, but mm. that we shouldn't accept those negative side effects. With That shouldn't be possible. We should be able to get the, the positives without those vast, quite disastrous negative effects. So I wrote an, I wrote an article for The Guardian about that and kind of focused actually on athletes. The athletes should be the ones speaking out about the things that they, that they care about and especially mm-hmm. around these issues because we're the ones that are kind of at the center of it. So we should have a voice if it's something that we, we personally care about. And Sam, Sam Parfit was the, had started TAP a, a year or two before that. And he saw the article and he, he just reached out to me and told me a little bit about what, what TAP was at the time. It was, it was pretty young, but had an amazing vision for, for sport and for unleashing, specifically for unleashing sports positive potential in the world and trying to to negate the the other side, the darker side of it. We communicated a little bit, but then after after Rio, when I retired, that's that's a good time to get in contact with an Olympian after an Olympics, where they often have time on their hands. And I quickly just kind of dived in and got heavily involved. Firstly, yeah. running their mentoring program. Okay, couple of questions. So you talk about how athletes should be taking the lead and speaking out. Why do you think more don't? Well, historically, there's a lot of um, inertia in the system. There's a lot going against it. I mean, being advised not to, saying that they should stick to their bubble, stick to their sport, stick to dribbling, whatever it is. um, That's just been the traditional narrative is that athletes are good at sport and they should stick to that. Throughout history, there are amazing examples of athlete activists who Mm. raise awareness about issues that they care about to an incredible degree. And there's this amazing like kind of hypocrisy in the IOC of um, the John Carlos, the, the black power salute on, on the podium where those two were 
kind of derided they were almost kicked out of the olympic movement at the time but are now lauded for for being these forward thinkers and and there is this kind of dichotomy at, at play still where over a longer period we look back at them as kind of as role models but at the time they're derided but now we've got some some just fantastic examples of athletes speaking out of things that they care about making a huge difference and I mean the the global stars that stand out LeBron who's just a and actually a lot of the American this was my second article in the Guardian was about how American professional athletes seem to do this a lot better than Mm. the rest of Europe and the UK as soon as they've made it they're kind of looking to how they can make a difference in their community and kind of give back and speak out about yeah. the things that they care about. Marcus Rashford is just the, the most wonderful yeah. example of an athlete kind of standing up for what he cares yeah. about and showing that we should, athletes shouldn't just stick to stick to their sport. They have so I mean, much he's transcended potential. football for me. But, you know, what he's done off it will far exceed what he'll ever achieve on it, in my Absolutely. view. And he, and he he drew me back into football more uh, to that extent. I mean, I I was... I mean, I'm a huge Arsenal fan. I certainly was at one point. And seeing people like him playing the game and the and the England players over the summer, and a lot of them were doing similar things, were kind of speaking out about things, racism and things that they cared about. That drew me back into to wanting to see more football. Hmm. Then the other thing was TAP itself. So Sam got in touch with you. And so what, what vision did he paint of what TAP was? And how did he sell it to you? And how did it resonate? Well, it just spoke to exactly where I was at that moment where I was being presented with, my bubble had been burst. I was being presented with some of the really serious kind of negative kind of darker sides of sport. But I had this personal experience. I also had some personal experience of some of the darker sides through kind of injury and very personal side. But my general personal experience is what was one of real kind of just an incredibly positive like freedom, searching for flow, great relationships and those kind of things. So he painted that that same picture that I was starting to kind of become aware of and and pointed to, a, I mean, our vision is about creating a more compassionate culture through sport. So using sport, not just as a means to an end in itself, but as as a kind of vehicle for, for something wider and bigger. So become, making it something, a positive kind of driver for societal change and that's the premise of of your book really isn't it which is that sport is a tool for both personal growth and then also societal contribution and growth but that currently sport is falling way short of its early ideals but sport has come away from that hasn't it yeah it's exactly right we it's not not necessarily that sport has ever truly lived up to those ideals. And throughout history, sport has been used for specific kind of specific goals of those societies. So for creating an industrialized workforce or warriors suitable for war. But there has there there, there are these lofty goals and the Olympic goals, the Olympic Charter kind of really describes them well. There there are values that we still claim that sport kind of lives up to, but I think the Olympic movement is the is the best example of where we're we're missing we're we're kind of missing the target so dramatically um it just become a huge money machine it's just a huge business and not about contribution to society personal growth and relationships it's been and across society not just at the olympic level right down to kids under eight-year-old leagues in america being professionalized 
it's all been taken up by a results focused approach just win at all costs right from the very start all the way through there was this this story about an arsenal recruiting a four-year-old <laughs> so what i'm pr- proposing in the book is that through this results focused approach we're just missing all that is meaningful all that is is truly valuable about sport and if we keep going down this route then we shouldn't and i i start to agree with my wife that we shouldn't have these we shouldn't have these events and actually sport is not giving us what what we purport it to and what what it could do and it's a travesty yeah. as somebody who's a huge huge fan of sport and of the olympics i can't really accept it we need to find a better way yeah so you say it's all about winning is the the current driver and money and it does reflect society if you think of corporations let's say you know it's all about the bottom line it's about paying shareholders and you know lots of corporations i'm sure companies have our values written on their wall but they can dispense with those ultimately as long as they're making money the other stuff's extra that they can do without and similarly in sports certainly there has been that let's win it doesn't really matter how so clearly there's a lack of adhering to values should we say values is something that's come up a lot obviously on this podcast and I know it's something that you really embraced, right? So you had a period during, you, during your career. So I know you were, you describe yourself in quite chastening terms when you were a young fencer. You know, I know you were sent home once for some raucous behavior, which I'd love to hear about, but we haven't got time. But you did some work with Katie Warriner when you were going through a tough time and she got you to work on your values, which was a real game changer for you, wasn't it? So can you just tell me what you did, how you established them and the impact it had? Yeah, so this was the Olympic year. This was 2012, and I'd been working with, working for five, six years as a full-time athlete towards those Olympics. And then I, I got injured in the first training session of the year in January. I broke my, my sword um, wrist, and I had – it just went a kind of downward spiral that very quickly I had four months out of sport, out of being able to train – two surgeries i could do some physical training but i just went in every day and saw my my teammates training and training oh, away and stop it um so it was a really it was a really tough period the hardest in my in my career and uh i was connected with with katie through steve peters actually she was working with him at the time and and she it was the first time that i'd worked with a sports psychologist to really open my eyes to to what was what was possible, but especially what was inspirational about sports psychology. I'd, I'd had kind of work, bits of work with them before, with sports psychologists before, but no one had really kind of set a spark inside me of like, this is really fun and exciting. And it was difficult as, as well. And I was going through this, this hard time, but it was exploring how I wanted to be. And I was really resentful and kind of bitter at the time. And so we we did a number of kind of different exercises and we were working with, with the chimp model at the time, which was Steve Peters's model, which I, I still, I, I still think has a, a huge amount of merit. I really appreciated it. It worked for me really well then. And one of, one of those kind of one part of that is working on your values. So exploring your personal values and then, and then how you can live by them. And it's such, and I've taken that on and we, in our mentoring program now, we, we, that's one of the, the, the key exercises in the year. Yeah. And, and it always comes back as one of the highlights of the year where yeah. sometimes the mentors do it as well with their mentees. And it's, it just, 
it always leads to very meaningful conversations about what you value about yourself, about yourself in sport and, and what you find valuable in life. So I can't remember the exact process, but it was, a, it was kind of through conversation and then through kind of identifying on cards what my values were. And then, and then diving in, exp- explaining, kind of describing what each value means to me, and then exploring what, how I can live that value in, in my life right now, and how is it going to help me deal with this situation I'm in, and it, it changes the focus completely away. Again, it gets away from the results focus, the outcome. It wasn't, lo- it was no longer about, am I going to be on the Olympic team? Am I going to get my Olympic dream? But I'm in this situation now. How can I make sure that I'm proud of myself by the end of it? When all this yeah. is said and done, how can I still be proud of myself, regardless of whether I qualified or not, or done well or not? And that was profoundly freeing, took away a lot of that anxiety, which are all, it's always all about the results and the outcome, and made me realize that there's, there's so much I could do, and I could still be proud, regardless of, of how it ends up. And you've got a lovely list at the back of the book with a huge range of values that people can go through can i ask what are yours i've done this exercise twice once as an athlete and then again as a as a professional and the kind of the top the top three i would say were integrity a learning mindset and then quality was the third one nice and that leads us then on to tap so the true athlete project the four virtues and virtues are different right to, to values but for the purpose of keeping it simple we'll bracket them together so just explain, there are four key values slash virtues that underpin the True Athlete Project. So can you just um, tell me what they are and then let's dive in? Yeah. So these four, they, they kind of, they, they weren't there from the start, but they were, I, I drew them out of all the things that, that are our approach that we work with and they, they just kind of fit very nicely around it, our entire philosophy. So they are integrity is one compassion, responsibility, and awareness. These are also chosen because we, there are many kind of values, virtues of being an athlete, being in sport that we kind of recognize. The the traditional athletic kind of virtues around hard work and commitment, dedication, teamwork, resilience, determination, all of these we know so well. And what we what we've seen so clearly over, especially recently, is that those traditional athletic kind of traits and values, they can help you. They can help you be world champion. They can get you to the very top. But there's there's something missing if you if you want to be world champion and also fulfilled in your life and kind of thriving throughout. And so these these are these are values or traits that we think are essential to thriving in sport. But Actually, you don't need any of them if you just want to be world champion. You could be yeah. world champion without any compassion or with very little integrity. Look at Lance Armstrong. But they're, they're absolutely essential to living a meaningful, fulfilled and kind of thriving life. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And that's something that's come up a lot is that the number of athletes who do reach the top of the mountain and realize actually... I don't feel as fulfilled or I even I feel empty as Johnny Wilkinson said after 2003 that winning on its own can be a very hollow experience. Yeah, it's hollow if you if you haven't focused on the right things along the way. If it's all been about the winning and not about the things that we know give meaning in a in a life and in a career which are the rela- relationships, the experiences you have. Mm-hmm. Um, the growth that you've you've kind of been through, those are the things that give real meaning and a sense of fulfillment. Yeah. So in terms of integrity, can you think of some examples of where sport is lacking here? And I mean, I think I've heard you talk about, for example, football, and I know you're a big football fan. And they do lots of things, for example, around social campaigns, as we know, around racism. Yet at the same time, there is a lack of integrity on some levels that's just accepted. For example, it's okay to absolutely rant in the referee's face yeah or diving and that hints at a lack of integrity yeah absolutely diving is the example i use in the book because it feels so it feels like one that's so easy to wipe out if you just if the authorities just wanted to especially with var now and it seems to be chosen we choose not to but it could be wiped out from the top down or from the individual athletes some players would probably would would not dive because that they have personal integrity. A club could wipe it out within their club. And I think it's just a terrible indictment. And for that to be the thing that happens in every game multiple times, for kids to be watching this and thinking this is sport, it's just such a clear example of sport not living up to its values and not doing its potential good in the world. And it's so it's yeah, it's one of my kind of bugbears is diving in football. And you wonder if by looking at these small things, let's say respect to a referee not dive in etc you wonder if then what effect that would potentially have on a knock-on effect you look at the small things the supposedly inconsequential things and what effect they may have ultimately on the really big things the racism the abuse yeah well absolutely if you can see footballers screaming abuse at referees then why wouldn't a fan and a a dad next to his son in the stands scream abuse at the referees. I mean, yeah. I did it as well when I was at, at the Arsenal. Scream <laughs> at the referees. But at some point I realised this is absurd that we're abusing a man for doing his job, for just trying to do his best. And I mean, so obviously he's not a corrupt person. Referees are not corrupt. And yet they're getting this abuse. And it's just, that has a knock-on effect as well for those people, who, those kids who are there watching this, this is acceptable behaviour. 
and you've gone off football for this reason a bit, haven't you? Well, yeah, I did go off for, and I'm still not nearly the kind of as engaged as I was, and that was a big part of it for sure. Life got in the way as well, but yeah, blooming life. So that's integrity, right? Responsibility. If you're not taking responsibility, if you're making excuses, if you're blaming other people and circumstances and life for your experience of it, then you're choosing to be powerless. Yeah, and I take this in a in a few different directions, and that's that's one that I mean, in my my work as a in, in fencing, I'm the performance director in fencing. I I really want my athletes to take responsibility for their own development. That's one side is is responsibility for your own development, your own mistakes, your own behaviors. And then there's this other, there's other side which we've touched on already, which is a responsibility for making a positive impact around you. So a responsibility to your community, to society. And we have we have various responsibilities. And I think I, we're, we're starting to realize that exactly where some of those are absolutely key, our responsibility to our natural environment, for example, is just front and center right now. So um, bringing that into the into the the sphere of an athlete is is a big part of, of the kind of tap approach as well and kind of highlighting how those times when you can you can give back you can kind of fulfill your responsibility to to those around you they they can become the, they can be the most meaningful parts of your entire journey results and all um, I certainly feel like that looking back at my career that those opportunities to, to kind of live out my responsibility they shine kind of stronger than than many of the other experiences very well said right let's move on to compassion and there are lots of layers to it so we'll start with let's say the outward focusing compassion first which is around respect and compassion for others and the definition of what competition really means which is to strive together so yeah just a quick word if you can on compassion outwardly focused yeah well i've experienced both sides of this this coin in terms of my attitude towards my opponents, I was, as a younger athlete, I was definitely the kind of, these are my, these are my enemies. I didn't like them. I, I kind of actively kind of cultivated a dislike for my opponents. And, and it just brought on a huge amount of anxiety and kind of fear of losing to them because it's desperate not to lose to those people. And the, the, the kind of the after effects of losing, which happens every competition, because I don't win almost any competition, then it's just far more negative. It takes it took me days or weeks to get over some losses. And then later in my career, where I actually realized I like these guys, I'm, I'm friends with lots of them, that the rest are absolutely fine. And then we're just on this journey together. I could perform far more, far better with far more freedom and far more to my potential because I was just focused. I could just focus on what do I need to do? What's my game plan and, and my myself rather than this enemy that needs to be crushed and what if he's crushing yeah. me actually. So, so that I've, I've experienced both sides and, and seen how the kind of traditional, that traditional approach is just the, it's just wrong for, for so many reasons and so and ineffective. So yeah. it's one of the ways where traditional sport culture has just, has just got it wrong and we need to update it. And then there's this, this, this other element, which kind of is a bit broader, a bit more sweeping, which is the, the impact of compassionate, of acts of compassion. People like to think of the, the drama of sport of like fierce rivalries where people like boxers hate each other and want to kill each other or, or <laughs> football teams are fierce rivals. But but those acts of, of compassion, they travel far faster and are more impactful, it seems. That, I mean, 
because our kind of our true nature is is one of love and we're mm. we're craving it we crave those that that evidence that that love exists between people even in places you wouldn't expect so that famous picture of gareth southgate hugging a yeah. colombian player who missed the penalty yeah just a true act of compassion and compassion yeah. comes in in times of suffering and he can he could clearly recognize having had his own experience of the same thing the suffering of this guy and 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 embrace him in kind of his human experience and yeah and that was just and i think gareth southgate just exhibits compassion and and just a wonderful form of leadership which is just kind of captivating the certainly the england english nation but captivating those who see it in action because it's such a we're just craving that form of leadership and that kind of form of interaction and engagement and then obviously as well in terms of compassion for others that striving together you talk about bill russell i mean if you're american he needs no further introduction but like coach of the top top order secretly rooting for his opponents because he wants them to perform to their best to help his own team rise to new heights and, but it's important to note this is not an attitude or a mindset just for the those who have made it to the very top of their sport who can now suddenly start to appreciate their opponents this is a more effective strategy for starting in your sport for at any level and any athlete should be doing this and like you point out anyone in life should should rather adopt this for for a more kind of potent performance themselves right let's turn it back inwards because so you were someone who beat yourself up right um yeah. and this is this is very common i remember helen glover saying this you know if she had a bad morning when she was rowing on the uh river she would beat herself up for a day or two and you see this let's say after a football match or or any other match when someone loses if they weren't exhibiting signs of self-flagellation people would question them it's almost like this if you're not punishing yourself you're doing something wrong but you found out that also is a load of gubbins yeah Uh, and it's exactly that and another way that the traditional kind of sport culture is it just pushed us towards a, a strategy that is is not as effective, and we need to change that narrative. And so this is, and this is also the thing that people most want to talk about when I, after I've written this book, but also when we kind of work on this with with the True Athlete Project, is this idea of self compassion and how that's a more potent strategy. So again, it's about relieving that anxiety. I used to, I used to be incredibly hard on myself. I would cry after every competition and also that I'd lost to my enemy suddenly. And I, I thought that I should feel that way because it meant that I cared. And, and I, I also felt like that was, that was expected of me. I was showing everyone else how much I cared. And I thought it would make, it would make me work harder to, to do what I needed to do to come back and win the next time. Um, but it came with this huge amount of anxiety around, yeah, this huge, kind of dark cloud that was hanging over if I lost I was going to feel terrible so that would just impact me in the performance and if I made a mistake I'd I'd be beating myself in the moment and and that's that's not very helpful for for your focus so again like kind of later on in my career through the, some of this work with values and and how I wanted to be and um kind of a realization of what I what I loved about the sport and why I was doing it and what was meaningful about it um, I came around to this this much kinder approach of forgiving myself in the moment. So if I made mistakes, that's that's acceptable. I can I just need to to get on get back on with it and, and refocus. And if I lost, 
I just it just didn't suffer in any way the same way. And again, that kind of helped free up my performance. And I could I was performing absolutely at my best when I was I had none of that that kind of self flagellation. And I see it as the probably the greatest, the, the biggest issue in in young athletes that I speak to is that that sense of of self criticism, and they think that that's what they need. And actually, what they need is the opposite. They need self compassion to yeah. to go to the next level. So, what does self compassion look like? How would you encourage someone to be compassionate to themselves? I mean, it it revolves a lot around your your kind of inner dialogue, what you're what you're telling yourself, what you're saying to yourself, and that can take some training to 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 change when it's been built up over many years but the first step in that process is gaining an awareness of what you're actually what is going on in your mind and so actually one aspect of self compassion is is mindfulness that for the foundation of it is being aware of what is going on in your mind and that that kind of the training you can do for that is is mindfulness training and then when you are aware of what's going or what you're saying to yourself, then you, you start to treat yourself with, with kindness. As just as you would a, a friend or a teammate who's, who's saying the same things to themselves, if, if, you caught, if you heard them, somebody you loved saying how terrible they are, how awful is a human being they are because they missed a shot in basketball, you'd go, you'd, you'd go and you'd be kind and you'd, you'd be forgiving and warm and and that's the thing that you need to turn on yourself. And that's, that's the thing that we find so difficult. We have no problem with, with doing the same thing for our, our friends and our, our family. But on ourselves, we, we tend to have an issue with it. It feels awkward. And then the mm. final kind of step or the final kind of part of it is, is a recognition that the failure, inadequacy, mistakes, they're all common to all humans, that this is part of our human experience. And in, in sport, it's absolutely necessary. You, you just can't get to the top without making mistakes, without failing. There's no, no athlete that has ever gotten to the top without that because that's where you know you're at your limit and you're pushing yourself. So um, there are these three aspects, that kind of the mindfulness, this, the self-kindness, and this common humanity, it's called, that build a self-compassionate approach. So a few thoughts. First of all, you talk about the mistakes, and I think back to when you broke your arm and I mean, it was not an enjoyable experience, but clearly it was actually a foundational experience that you went through in terms of learning your values. And then you talked about what we're telling ourselves. So I just want to question that a little bit. So you talk about mindfulness and I know you're, you meditate, let's say we're following your breath, right? Yeah. And you know that when you sit there and you follow your breath, before you know it, you're distracted by thoughts. doesn't matter how long you've been doing it, you've been distracted by thoughts. Now, those thoughts... Are you choosing them or are they just coming up of their own accord? They're coming up of their own accord. So I understand this idea of internalizing a kind voice. And I know you, you spoke about, for example, thinking of a, a friend or a family member, you know, who would speak kindly and speaking to yourself in that way. But a couple of things I'd say, first of all, is that our brains and our minds work by addition. So you can layer on an extra nice layer, but that doesn't mean that the the critical stuff's going to go away. Do you speak Danish fluently? Yeah, I do. Yeah, it hasn't affected your English though, has it? Uh, a little bit, but not. I mean, it is showing a lot. little in this interview, but, <laughs> but I mean, you're doing all right. Like yeah, your command of the language is yeah. is primarily pretty good. So it's like, yeah, we can layer on this kind internal voice, and I'm not saying there's not value in that, by the way. But it doesn't mean that the, the critical stuff isn't there because that also is just internalized 
or conditioned stuff from way back then. And well, I think actually, my 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 personal experience of that was that I, I used a slightly different approach, a bit more of a CBT approach of responding to my negative inner dialogue consistently. And over about a year of doing that, I found that I just condition reconditioned myself, so I didn't get that negative inner dialogue really? anymore. So that, that's interesting. That was gone and it's never come back. That's interesting. So for me, I would say it's more not identifying with the voice. For example, if a voice comes up and goes, oh, you're silly, right? And you don't think, oh, I've thought that. You recognize it as a thought. So it's not personal. It's, you're not, it's not me saying it. It's just a thought coming up. You don't identify with it. You don't buy into it. You're aware of it. You don't resist it. You let it sail on through. And then of its own accord, without that identification, it naturally withers away of its own accord. Rather than trying to change the internal dialogue, just not identifying with it has had a similar effect. It comes back to that simple thing. Are we our thoughts or are we aware of our thoughts? Yeah, and we've talked a lot about the, the non-dualist <laughs> philosophy. And I will agree with you. And I would probably say that my, my approach might be, would probably be moving in, in your direction. This, it's just it's another strategy for, of course. for kind of dealing with this right and there's there's self-compassion therapy which is is used kind of clinically for for some of this stuff so it's an effective strategy for for some people i think you're right i think you what you're talking about gets more to the to reality to the truth of reality but there's certainly i mean but the, the self-compassionate kind of, of course response that that can that can be profoundly effective as well no doubt about that. And like I said, I'm not knocking it. It's just, I think there are different ways of, of looking at it because I remember when I went through a period of really battling a critical inner voice. And I remember actually, I think I was covering a football match, in fact, and I was stood at the station and maybe I was run down, I was stressed and anxious and whatever else. And this voice has come out and I was just battling it, battling it, battling it. And then I, I can still remember the moment. I think I was on a platform it might have been outside West Ham. And the energy required to change that voice, I was just like, oh, I can't do it anymore. I just didn't have the power to just keep this constant dialogue. Whereas that kind of just allowing things to be takes no effort whatsoever. But again, like I said, not to knock it. It's interesting then. So would you say that even since writing this book, your view of things has evolved? Yeah, it's, it's always evolving. And I think just in the, this last year, I've I've been become more interested in the non non dualist yeah. approach. So I can see it's just I can see so much power in that. Then it's just a question of what's the most kind of effective strategy for for young athletes, for example, sure. or for athletes. Absolutely, like yeah. Is aimed at, and probably just having a having options, having various options yes. to get to that end is is the right way. So, you know, I talk about acceptance a lot. So what would you say is the difference between, say, for example, self-compassion and self-acceptance? I, I think the best, the, the, the best place we've gotten to so far is that compassion, the self-compassion is an active thing. It's, some, it's a way of responding to yourself at, in times of suffering. And that's with using those kind of methods that I was describing. And you can use, there's, there are meditations, there are exercises you can use to help build up your self-compassionate kind of approach whereas self-acceptance is leading more into what you were describing there is a, a kind of underlying lens that you how you view the world or underlying philosophy about the world and, and its reality and 
and the the idea that you can accept yourself in any moment based on that philosophy so it's more of a kind of a being you've talked about being and doing yeah yeah it's, so it's, it's more of a being and self-compassion yeah. is a doing if, if someone said like how how can you be self-accepting well it's like it is it's a non-doing right it's like a way to describe it i think would be like do you have to do anything to be aware of the me speaking now no, no like absolutely nothing it just happens of its own accord so actually acceptance you can only not accept and that comes through thinking this moment should be different or i don't like this etc which is which is thinking without that acceptance is already there the whole time and that actually leads us onto awareness but i just want to start with this you have a line in there which is the whole idea of awareness can be abstract and it is as an idea as a concept and i think this is the problem perhaps with awareness and acceptance which to me really go hand in hand is that because we're so used to concepts and ideas and things and like putting our attention on things, even in mindfulness, right? Like you're putting your attention on your breath. But the idea of awareness is abstract, right? So no one can get their head around the idea of awareness, but that's because it underlies the mind, doesn't it? Because it is a difficult concept, yet it's the most fundamental thing we all know. It is our primary experience. When we say I am, basically we're saying I am aware. I'm hungry. I'm happy. It means I'm aware of hunger. I'm aware of happiness, etc. So you can't conceptualize it, yet we are all intimately aware of awareness. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think in the book, I don't take it on quite such a philosophical level. It's it's a bit more on a practical level. I would say it's I would say it's experiential level rather than philosophical. Because philosophical would be of the mind, whereas it's more experiential. It's like, is it a philosophy to be aware of what I'm saying or aware of what you can see? No, it's an experience. Yeah, and I think we we need to we need to write the book together on the, the deeper <laughs> level of awareness. Right, signed here in this book, hundred percent, all in. But again, there's many many layers to awareness. Let's talk about some of the other ones. For example, you know, self awareness. Yeah, I mean, one of the simplest kind of aspects of self-awareness is your own body language and how that affects you and, and others. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just profound, it's so simple, such a simple thing as how you stand or how you hold yourself after a, after a goal, after a point or after being scored against and the effect it has on your own kind of your own mood, your own emotions and those of your opponents. There, there's some, there's just something, there's so much to gain in being aware of what, what's going on in your own body that can affect everything else. So mm. that's that's a very kind of tangible benefit of increasing self-awareness. The, the awareness, just a bit more on a kind of inner self-awareness around around your values and your yeah. well, your your inner processes, your inner dialogue. Even though yeah. we've, we've agreed that it's it's not you, it's, yeah. it's the, <laughs> multi-layered. Um, so I think, I mean, we all almost all of us just go through life kind of on autopilot in, in yeah. much of life and growing that awareness of what's going on in your mind. Yeah. It's just so essential for athletes. You, I, I would, I spent years kind of fluctuating in a, in a match between super focus and, and winning points and then being unfocused and losing three points and then gaining it again. And I, just because I, I was, had no awareness of what was going on in my mind, I was unfocused and, and 
daydreaming or focus on the wrong thing and just not aware. Growing the awareness of just what's happening in your mind is key. I had a really interesting conversation with Dr. Amy Aziki, who I know you've you've listened to recently. And she said to me, the number of athletes, she will say, like, why are you doing this? And they can't answer that. And, you know, asking yourself searching questions like, like, really, why am I doing X, Y, Z? And again, this can be applied to absolutely anything in life. Why am I doing this? That's self-awareness 101. Yeah, actually, that's one of the, the subsections of that of that title of that chapter is is the awareness of what really matters in in sport and in life and it kind of gets to that why am i doing this well if you're just doing this because you like winning then you you probably want to reassess things and and try and add to it or do something else because just the winning firstly you're probably not going to win all that much and the, the the emotion itself is fleeting um but at the end of the day it's it, it's not very meaningful in itself meaningful because of all the things that it's built on top of so growing your awareness of the meaningful that maybe you're doing it anyway maybe you are kind of growing the relationships and enjoying those the, the experiences of being an athlete maybe you are doing those but just growing the awareness of that those are the those are the real things that matter the winning yeah. that's just the fun little cherry on the top and um, yeah it's actually that those other things are the things that really you should you should know these are the things that matter care about these things yeah absolutely listen uh it's been an absolute pleasure and like i said i think you've got a blooming gift for writing i really do i was really impressed with your writing skills so this is going to be the first of many no doubt becoming a true athlete and then the true athlete project is just superb just as a final thing as a final thought what would you like to achieve with tap and how has it affected your life and i suppose how can people get more involved if you like well um I mean, so I, I, I run <laughs> in 30 seconds. I, I run the our mentoring program, which matches elite athletes with young aspiring athletes. And we have this kind of really holistic, quite awesome program that they work through together. And it has been truly one of the joys of my life to be involved in this as a, I've been a volunteer in this role for the last five years. And I'm about to, to move over into more of a professional role. Um, so, and I've just seen, and the reason is that I've seen the reactions and the responses from these athletes, from both mentors and mentees, very different stages in their careers, very different, just, just kind of backgrounds, whatever they're from. And they just find, they, they breathe this sigh of relief when they find TAP and they find this the mentor and the mentee and this approach that, that shows that there's a different way of doing things. And it's just so it's inspiring and it just it just shows us on a weekly basis that we that we're on the right track that there's so, there's a real thirst for this out there not oh, just yeah. in sport because it speaks to people outside and in their normal lives and i hear this i've heard this about the book as well people who've said that this relates to their their lives who they're not athletes yes i mean it's a manifesto for living actually just to say that this definitely transcends sport and and i think that's why that's why tap attracts me and others is that they see that it's it it's so it's much more inspiring than just can I win or yeah, the win or loss column, and that's what I, that's what I see, and that's what we hope to do. We hope to inspire people with this with this compassionate approach that that we know that the world needs more of. So absolutely, yeah. Listen, I would encourage anyone to check out the True Athlete Project as well as your book. I can sense this growing groundswell of people who really 
believe in this stuff of what sport can be, what it can teach us about life, what life can be, what is really important, all the bigger questions, as they say. So I would encourage anyone to get the book and then definitely as well, check out The Triathlete Project. I'm excited just to watch it grow. Anyway, listen, Lawrence, always a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks, Owen. I think we did okay here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life Lessons from Sport and Beyond. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. And if I was to pull two things from it to focus on, it would be, firstly, the importance of establishing your values and trying to live in accordance with them. As Lawrence explained, when he started doing this midway through his career, his enjoyment of the sports increased. He felt less pressure when performing and it had positive effects on other areas of his life as well. And it continues to really reverberate with the work he's doing now, not least alongside the fantastic True Athlete Project. The other area I would highlight is this idea of compassion, both to yourself and to people around you, including your so-called competitors. It can, of course, be an active process in terms of treating others and yourself with kindness, as well as something of a passive process too, and accepting yourself and others as they are and as you are without getting lost in judgmental thinking. Which leads me on to this week's Monday on Monday newsletter, which you can sign up via simonmundy.com. One of this week's nuggets is about the power of learning to watch our mind and its habitual and repetitive thought patterns. A simple yet ultimately profound practice. Now, if you haven't yet signed up and want this week's newsletter but are too late, just drop me an email and this week I will personally send you a copy. The best way to get in touch is via my website, simonmundy.com. Anyway, that's it for now. Until next time, have a great week. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.